Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Double Elvis. Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Brian Wilson was a musical genius and one of the greatest songwriters of all time. He caught melodies like they were waves. He bottled good vibrations like no one else. And he picked up bad vibrations too. He broke down. He tripped hard. He didn't just hear music, he heard voices. He tried to lose those voices by making a teenage symphony to God called Smile. But somewhere along the way, Brian Wilson lost his mind instead. This is his story. Hello, this is Rhonda Mawson again. I'm still compiling these Brian Wilson tapes, and the more I listen, the more varied these tapes seem to be. There are so many recordings here. I mean, here's one that's just labeled vegetables. It goes on for ages like that. But this is what I really wanted to show you. I've just stumbled across something pretty incredible. It was just labeled with the doodle of the sun. From what I can hear, it's just one session, but it seems to be around 90 hours of tape. 
I haven't got through it all yet as it's so, you know, long, but it looks to be all the parts of the Beach Boys classic Good Vibrations. Let me play you the bit I've just found. This is from In Between Some Takes. Sorry for the pause, everyone. I just need to make sure that this room is right. It has to be right. The vibrations need to be perfect, okay? Listen. Listen with me. You hear that? God. This whole thing isn't right. This place is tainted. Can anyone else feel that? Wait. No. No. This won't work. I'm canceling this session. I'm sorry, everyone. Pack up. This isn't right. The vibrations aren't... They aren't right. If the vibrations aren't right, we can't get the music. And if we can't get the music, we'll just put... We'll just put blood on the tracks. Chapter 2 Brian Wilson is seeing vibrations. That little arrangement we had where the Beach Boys toured and I stayed behind in the studio was really paying off. We were making hits. The music sounded great, but it was about to get a whole lot better. We were about to release our best album to date. We began making pet sounds in the middle of 1965 and by February 66, we were pretty much done with the music. Geez, I loved making those songs. The studio had become a place where I felt safe, happy, evened out, you know. I didn't feel like that outside the studio. While I was making those songs, the, the guy who had that whatever it was, that, that breakdown on the plane, he felt like he was a completely different person. It was like I didn't even know him. One time we were uh, cutting a track called That's Not Me, and one of the musicians, a guy called Steve, turned to me and said, you're nothing like I thought you would be. I asked him what he meant. He said he thought I might be a bit more out there. That kind of exchange hasn't really stopped over the years. People think of me as some sort of volatile or unstable person, but that's not really true. There's just some uneven parts of my brain that can get the better of me. It has to be right. But when I was in the studio recording those tracks, I really felt at ease. This serene studio atmosphere would eventually be shattered, of course. Uh, everything delicate in this world manages to get crushed one way or another. The vibrations need to be perfect, okay? When the band returned from touring, things didn't go so well. Mike, Al, Carl, and Dennis had just played Asia. They were all in good spirits, but it was kind of awkward having them come back into this environment where I had been in charge for so long. We set about recording some of the vocals, and it was going fine at first, but we hit a roadblock when it came to the song, I Know There's an Answer. Mike Love didn't like the lyrics. 
He read them through once and then threw the paper down. Wait. I thought he was mad because I'd been working with other people on the words for the songs. I don't know if you know, but I enlisted Tony Asher, who worked in advertising. He joined me in writing the song, as did our road manager, Terry Sachin. But that's not what Mike was annoyed about. At least he said it wasn't. He was actually mad about the content of the lyrics. Listen with me. You hear that? You see, the song was originally titled Hang On To Your Ego, and, well, it was about taking LSD. Mike didn't like that, not one bit. What the fuck are these words, he yelled. I was just about to reply, but he launched into his rant. He screamed that every night on tour, they see audiences go wild for the normal Beach Boy material, and that if we change, the fans will abandon us. This whole thing isn't right. I told him it was just a few different words. It's the words, the music, everything, he replied. Someone told me you were recording dogs in here the other day. Dogs? We don't fuck with the formula. Is that really how you want to make a hit record? I told him I didn't care, and then, I don't know why, but I just went for him. I guess I was frustrated because I'd poured my heart into these songs. Maybe there's another problem here, I said, just loud enough for Mike to hear. Can anyone else feel that? I watched this puzzled look drift across his face as my brothers and Al became even more uncomfortable. If the vibrations aren't right. I tried to sound offhand, but I knew my next comment would land hard. I said, I don't think you guys can hack this. You're not cut out for this. Mike erupted and leapt towards me. Carl grabbed him. Fuck you, he shouted. We're out here every single day playing to our fans and you're in here doing God knows what with fucking dogs and LSD. These are the songs, I said. Take them or leave them. You hear that? We didn't speak for the rest of the session. Carl eventually calmed Mike down, but he was still angry. The last thing he said to me that day was, I've got a title for the album, Brian's Ego Music. How does that sound? Eventually we got the track down and it turned out pretty good, even with the lyrics altered from the original. Maybe tension and pressure has its place in creativity. Years later, Mike would say he liked the music, but he didn't feel it was the right sound for the band at the time, which is fair enough. We'll have to agree to disagree. Mike's not stupid, you know. He was right about one thing, drugs. Drugs were at the center of these songs. In fact, for right or wrong, they're at the center of my story. And it all started with one trip that changed everything. It's so vast in here. It's so vast. I guess you're wondering how my brain got like this. Man, that was a long time ago now. Things got a little bigger in here when I smoked grass and listened to the Beatles' 1965 album, Rubber Soul. Norwegian Wood, Michelle, man, the songs blew my mind. They literally took my mind away. You hear that? I felt so competitive in that moment. I thought, God, I want to do something good like that, you know? 
I felt like music could be more than it was. I felt like I could be more than I was. I just needed some inspiration. The grass and rubber sole gave me a good idea, but the real change that came later, that happened the first time I took acid, my life changed forever. Lauren Darrow, a talent agent I knew, introduced me to acid. Everyone was doing it, and I was interested to see what it could do for me, how it could help me. I still remember taking the acid and putting it on my tongue. It was like my life had been a black and white movie, and now everything was in Technicolor. It felt so vivid and crisp, like I'd been seeing the world in a blur this whole time. I remember instantly feeling thirsty and going to get a glass of water. After I poured it, I found myself just staring at it. It looked like the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, the way the light caught it, the way it moved in the glass. Just incredible. I brought it to my mouth and tasted water for the first time high. God, it tasted so fresh. I felt like it was my first drink of water ever. Water, water, water. I gulped it down and then immediately had another glass. Water, water, water. It was like it had fallen from heaven. Like I'd been in the desert for years, I'd dried out and someone had dumped the Pacific Ocean on my head. As I was drinking, something else caught my eye. It was the strangest thing. In the air before me, I saw staffs and notes fly by. A actual musical notation just hanging there. Sorry to interrupt your scheduled programming, but this just in. The sky is orange, the moon is black, and the grass is white. Have a great day now. I was floating. I felt great. But then it all changed. There was this rising feeling of anxiety. It had been there since the start, but I hadn't noticed it until the walls began to move. It, it was like they were this, uh, they were huge all of a sudden, like everything was getting bigger and I was getting smaller. I was suffocating under the pressure of the room. The vibrations aren't, they aren't right. I ran into my bedroom and put my head under the pillow. I don't know why, but I kept thinking of my mom and dad, then just my dad. No, no, this won't work. I closed my eyes and uh, saw myself as a younger person, like everything was going backwards, faster and faster, and then I was getting younger and younger. Suddenly I was just a baby sitting there in a diaper, a small little fragile baby, and then I was in the womb, and then I was an egg, and then I was gone, just nothing. I didn't exist. I was no longer there. It wasn't sad, I just didn't exist. I thought of how strange that was, how you couldn't be sad about being gone if you'd never existed in the first place. But at the same time, I was there. I was thinking all of these things. So I existed in some form. I couldn't get my head around it. I felt separate from myself, like I had a subjective sense of my life. I didn't know it then, but I clung on to that idea and it found itself in the song, I Know There's an Answer. That's what the whole trip was like scary but compelling. I experienced so much in a short amount of time, I felt like I'd seen the entire universe in a matter of hours. And now a word from our sponsor. Do you suffer from reality? Do you have to face the uh, real world? Want to feel closer to God? Well, what you need is acid. Acid, which is not illegal yet anyway, so it must be doctor recommended, is the only way to escape the day. Troubling upbringing? Acid. Pressuring your professional life? Acid. Problems at home with your wife? Acid. Acid. 
It's the only way to escape the day. Acid may cause hallucinations like being on fire, reliving your birth and non-existence. It also could result in a flashback. Do not consult your doctor. Oh man, <clears throat> sorry, I drifted off there. Where was I? Oh yeah, later and still tripping, I stumbled around until I found my way back into the living room. Time was meaningless. I saw my piano, so I sat on the bench and started to play. Played a B, then a, an F sharp, then a G sharp, before going back to F sharp. I played all those notes again and again and again for maybe an hour. I just went round and round and round with it. I must have fallen asleep at the piano because when I woke up, a whole day had passed. I still felt a little dizzy and everything looked a little bright, but I knew I was coming back down to earth. I sipped the same glass of water from before, but it didn't taste like it did before. I figured I was finally back to normal, but that's the funny thing with drugs. You're never sure when they're done with you. Things were far from being back to normal. In fact, things were about to change forever. Can anyone else feel that? At the piano, I started to play something straight away. My hand was possessed, like it had been taken over by God or something. More likely, it was the muscle memory from the trip. I started playing those same notes from before again. The B, the F sharp, the G sharp. I then started mumbling over it. All of a sudden, I, I saw the melody. I didn't hear it, I actually saw it. Just hovering over the keys, suspended in midair. I grabbed it. But not with my hands, but with my mind. And I started singing it as loud as I could. 30 minutes later, uh, and I had the song that would go on to be California Girls. Done and dusted in a half an hour. That's the moment I realized how powerful LSD could be. But you know, stuff like that, songs like California Girls, you have to pay for it. The universe or God or whoever just doesn't give you stuff like that on a plate, you have to pay for it. And I wasn't an exception. Just a week after that first trip, the voices began to speak inside my head. Hello, Brian. This is your father. And they'd never, ever leave. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. 
Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's things we can't see, things we'll never see, things we shouldn't see, vibrations. Vibrations are everywhere. Ignore them at your peril. The vibrations need to be perfect, okay? They scare me because they are moving around us, dictating how things are. 
all without us being able to see them. Can anyone else feel that? When I wrote Good Vibrations, I was thinking about how people sense instinctively if something is good news or bad news. You know, like when the telephone rings, sometimes you just know what type of news is waiting for you at the other end. We can sense those vibrations, but we often aren't open to them. This idea first came to me a long time ago, back when I was just a child. I was walking with my mother near our house. Across the street was this huge German Shepherd. I'd seen him around the neighborhood many times, and on this day he was dozing in someone's front yard, basking in the morning heat. There was a man walking on the sidewalk right past the dog. He seemed nervous, but kind of angry too. Without warning, the dog leapt up from its slumber, ran towards the fence. No, no, this won't work. It jumped up, but it couldn't clear it. So it just stood and barked wildly at this guy. Rather than move on or pacify the dog, he hit the fence aggressively and just taunted the dog. The German Shepherd was furious. This whole thing isn't right. It butted against the wire fence, growling. Its spit was all over the hot ground. The man laughed as he walked away and disappeared around the corner. My mother made me cross the road and slowly we made our way towards the angry beast. I didn't want to go anywhere near it. This place is tainted. I couldn't understand why she would want to put us in danger like that. She tapped the fence lightly and bent down to the dog's level. Tentative at first, but eventually the dog stopped barking and came over to my mother. It pushed its head into the fence and my mother rubbed its head. She turned to me and she said, Brian, would you like to pet him? Only moments ago, this thing looked like it would feast on my blood. Now it was relaxed, docile, and before I could stop myself, my hand was moving toward it. Right before I touched the dog's fur, my ears buzzed with the tension. And then, the dog was resting its head on the fence, pushing against my forearm. You see, my mother said, dogs can pick up on vibrations. They could read a situation or a person immediately. You hear that? She had a hard job tearing me away from that dog. I wanted to stay there forever. It was all I could see in my mind's eye as I stood in Gold Star Studios years later. It was the day the Beach Boys were cutting my song, Good Vibrations. It was completely silent in the studio. I walked around. Eight or nine musicians stood there, watching me, hardly breathing. You hear that? I asked. You hear that? No one replied. It's not... It's not right, I said. It's just not right. No. No, this won't work. I moved to the wall and touched the paneling. Nothing. Then I put my ear to the wall. All I heard was... Dum, dum, dum. Dum, dum, dum. Dum, dum, dum. Dum, dum, dum. I pulled my head off the wall quickly and turned to face everyone. They were all looking at me with wide eyes, full of expectation. No, no, this won't work, I said. I'm canceling this session. I'm sorry, everyone. Pack up. This isn't right. The vibrations aren't right. If the vibrations aren't right, we can't get the music. Chuck Britz, my recording engineer, begged me to reconsider. He told me I'd wasted $50,000 already. Wasted? I said to him. Wasted? We're making a pocket symphony here. Stuff like this takes time. I explained to him that everything had to be just right in these sessions. 
how we were creating something we'd never made before, something that no one had ever made before. I told him how I wanted this to be like a Beach Boys Gershwin movement, but with Phil Spector's production. No, better than Phil Spector. You hear that, Phil? I wanted this to be something that would challenge the Beatles to be better. I wanted those lads in Liverpool to hear and, and feel how I felt when I heard Rubber Soul for the first time. It took a while to get the song right, of course. I stitched together a lot of ideas, feels as I called them, together, you know, to make a song. We recorded it like that too, all in blocks. It took months and yes, a lot of money. I guess Chuck was right about that, but I didn't mind. I, I knew we were onto something. Can anyone else feel that? Everything came together on that track. It's full of good ideas and not just from me. My brother Carl suggested the cello and we had the inventor of the electro theremin, Paul Tanner, playing his instrument on the track. The music came together slowly, but it was like being born. It was a process. It had to be. The lyrics though, they were even harder. Tony Asher had written some good words to go with mine, but I wasn't that happy with them, to be honest. This whole thing isn't right. We had the good, good, good vibrations bit, but not a whole lot else. It needed something, but I didn't know what. Turns out I didn't have far to look. I was at the piano again in the studio one day, a little high again. Uh, I was just playing the song on the keys, thinking of all its different moving parts, singing what little lyrics I had that I liked. And that's when Mike Love came in. Is this the song you were talking about? He asked. Sure, I answered. Vibrations? He asked. I told him about the encounter with the dog and what it meant to me. And as I did, his whole face started to change. He got so excited. You're right, he said. There's vibrations everywhere. This is what's happening down in San Francisco. The peace and love movement down there. This is it, Brian. It's all about vibrations, the feelings in the air. It has to be right. He grabbed a pen from the top of the piano, scribbled something on his arm. I hadn't seen him like that in ages. So creatively inspired. We didn't really discuss it after that. He kind of kept me in the dark until we were all in CBS Columbia Square, ready to record the vocals. I was a bit anxious, thinking maybe he'd given up on it, but something incredible happened when we all got together. We were all standing around at the microphone. Then Mike finally walked in. Are we ready, he asked, holding up a legal pad. He later told me he'd written the final draft of the lyrics in the car on the way to the studio. I should have guessed. They were so fresh. When I heard the vocals that day, complete with Mike's new words, my mind raced. If this was how the next album was going to sound, it was going to blow everyone's minds. I was wrong, though. I wouldn't blow everyone's mind. Just mine. Epstein walks down Hollywood Boulevard, gazing up at the street lamps adorned with multicolored Christmas lights. He stops and looks up at them properly before catching himself. 
He cannot be late today. He has to be at work on time. Today, one of his regulars is coming in, and this one is a VIP. He sees the huge sign come into view as he briskly navigates the sidewalk. The words Pickwick Books dominate this section of the street. Louis feels a sense of pride when he sees them. And moments later, he's unlocking the front door and stepping into the shop, where the familiar fragrance of old books greets him as it does every day. It smells like home. Epstein turns on the shop's radio, and the sound of KFWB fills the air. He sits behind the counter and waits. He doesn't know what time it'll happen, but he knows it will happen. It's not until the afternoon that he hears the Corvette pull up outside. And as if by design, when the man steps out of the car, KFWB begins to play California Girls. As the man enters the shop, he shoots Epstein a smile. That's a great song, he says. You should know, Epstein replies. He watches as Brian Wilson heads for the health section. Almost every week, Brian visits the store, and almost every week he goes straight to that section. He's always buying books on physiology, which Epstein never knows how to take. Is this a joke? Is it a cry for help? The rumors of Wilson's drug taking and radical behavior have made LA showbiz gossip groups. There's also talk that Brian is turning his famous group into a psychedelic rock band. Epstein can believe it because today, Brian holds a copy of Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, which he clutches tightly to his chest. Epstein usually leaves his special guest alone, but today he can't help it. But with the Beach Boys song still playing on the radio, he feels he can do what he never does, engage the star. Geez, he says, instantly regretting his choice of words. I just love California girls, it's swell. You like that one, Brian replies. They all like that one. Epstein babbles on about pianos, chords, and harmonies. Brian doesn't reply. Epstein changes the subject, starts talking about the Beatles, the birds, Dylan. But Brian seems even less engaged. What Louis Epstein mistakes in that moment as rudeness from his famous customer is actually a chemical reaction in the brain. The moment Epstein mentions California girls, Brian gets a feeling. It starts small at the back of his head, but it grows like a fire spreading to his whole brain. Epstein talks and talks, but Brian's mind can't process what's being said. At first, it's just dizziness, but after a few seconds, Brian feels his eyes blur. He looks at the copy of Psycho-Cybernetics in his hands, and the letters begin to move around the page. Seconds later, the book feels like it's vibrating in his hands. He blinks quickly to try to snap out of it, but it only makes it worse. As he looks up to the rows of books from the floor to the ceiling, they all start to melt like candle wax. And the spines merge together, the colors running a sludgy mass of blue, red, green, and orange that slides down the walls. He flashes back to writing California Girls at the piano. He hears the notes ring in his ears. B, F sharp, G sharp. He doesn't know what is happening. He just knows he's terrified. California Girls is no longer playing on the radio, but it continues to ring in his ears. He smashes his hand against his head trying to get rid of the sound, and as he does, he knocks himself off balance. He stumbles and falls into a bookshelf. He's sinking in the dripping colors of wax, like he's surrounded by thick water. California Girls sounds distant now, and Brian struggles to breathe. He thinks, this is it. What is it? A heart attack? A stroke? A brain aneurysm? He closes his eyes and accepts his fate. 
But when he opens his eyes, Epstein is standing over him. The shop owner's face looks jumbled and elongated. It reminds him of his favorite Edward Monk painting. The words coming from Epstein's mouth are delayed. Brian watches his lips move, but it's a few seconds before the sound comes through. Are you okay? Epstein asks. Brian tries to nod, but doesn't know if he manages it. Are you on something, man? We can get a doctor. Brian manages to say no, and he hears the word reverberate, adding to the faint sound of California girls in his mind. Epstein lowers his voice a little. Are you sure you haven't taken any acid? Not for a while, Brian responds, somehow managing to form the words. Epstein asks if he's ever had a flashback, but it's too late. Brian's eyes are closing, and then his body shuts down. When he wakes up, he's at home in bed. The melting colors from the shop are blurred in his eyes still. But as he slowly regains focus, he realizes it's the Christmas lights on the tree in front of him. He looks to his right. On the nightstand, it's that copy of Psycho-Cybernetics. Inside the front cover is written a note that reads, this one's on the house, Louis Epstein. Brian lays back down and watches the Christmas lights twinkle. He thinks of the things he saw in the bookstore, worried he'll have a similar experience again. He pulls the duvet cover up over his face. What the fuck is going on? He doesn't know the answer to his own question, but he suspects it's about to put a whole lot of blood on the tracks. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Zeth Lundy is lead editor and producer. This episode was written by Ben Burrow. Mixing and sound design by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This season features Chris Anzalone as the voice of Brian Wilson. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. Follow Double Elvis on Instagram at DoubleElvis and on Twitch at Disgraceland Talks. And you can talk to me, per usual, on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, 
one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst and the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sir Eb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.